0: Well, this morning we
1: continue in our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to Titus. And just in recap, in looking through Paul's letter over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that he opens with a greeting to Titus. And in that we saw that he laid down the grounds for his instruction. The reasons why Titus and the churches that Titus was ministering within were to pay attention to what Paul was going to say. The foremost of those reasons uh, being that he had been commissioned by Jesus to be an apostle. And as such, he spoke with supreme authority. Uh, When we read these words of Paul, we recognize that they're not simply the words of some first century teacher, but the words of a first century teacher sovereignly guided by the Holy Spirit and therefore true and trustworthy and authoritative. Last week, uh, we began to look at Paul's first instruction to Titus. In uh, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul said to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And uh, once again, I reiterate the... uh, the hesitancy that I have in, in preaching this to you because um, Dave and Chris and myself, we are, we are all held accountable to what is mentioned through in these instructions. So I, I preach once again with great humility uh, as to what we see uh, in these following words. But Paul outlines firstly the importance of eldership in that it was a directive and it was a design of the apostles. There is only one mediator between man and God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But this truth does not negate the necessity of leadership in every congregation. A leadership whose dual task involves governing and teaching. The elders are the under-shepherds of the chief shepherd, jesus christ and so with sacrificial hearts they are to lead and feed and protect and care for the flock of god and the importance of eldership will be seen uh uh, next weekend in the following weeks when we come to see um the opposition that titus was facing as he implemented paul's instructions in those churches uh false teaching abounded and uh, really that is no different from the uh the culture that we find ourselves in today. Eldership is very important. We saw last week as we began uh, to look at um, the nature of eldership that it is an office that uh, can only be filled by men. Uh, Because as we saw in our our lengthy discussion on 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, that men and women uh, have divinely ordained tasks that they are each to fulfill in obedience to God for His glory and for uh, their own blessing. Men and women each have a high calling from God, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the exact same calling. But it is high nonetheless And there can be a tendency to react against that teaching. I mean, Paul grounds it in creation. But nevertheless, there there is a tendency to react against that teaching. It certainly doesn't fit well with our society we find today. It didn't fit well in Paul's society when he preached and taught this. There is a reaction suggesting that it, it limits a woman's full potential. But as Paul spoke... That is firstly to succumb to the deceptive voices of the age. And those voices will be in every age, as Paul explained very clearly. But it's also to focus on the several aspects that are set apart for men, rather than considering the enormous amount of ministry opportunity that means women are called to participate in. And uh, we'll have opportunity to talk about that more later when we get to Titus chapter 2. In addition to this requirement of of male eldership, we we also saw that it can only be fulfilled by godly men, men who are considered above reproach. And it's to this matter that we turn uh, this morning. So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1 and we're going to read verses 5 to 8. Paul says this, Titus chapter 1 from verse 5. Or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We'll get into verse 9 next week. This morning's sermon is entitled The Integrity. Of eldership. The qualities that Paul discusses in these verses are very familiar, are they not? Because they are required of every Christian. They are, they are things that every Christian, man or woman, boy or girl, young or old, are called to aspire in. The difference, however, is that eldership is where those godly characteristics are seen in operation. And so we must be clear that these are not merely desirous characteristics, but they are descriptive characteristics. Only men who possess these qualities are to be considered for eldership. Not only not those who, who think that they're a good idea and uh, will get around to them at some point in the future. Now, uh, as as we discussed last week, as discussed in, in any matter that we discussed from the pulpit, if there's any questions at all uh, from what we talk about this morning, then please uh, encourage you to, to come and speak to me after the service. And with an open Bible, we can we can discuss these things further together. So this morning, our focus is on the integrity of eldership. And the first aspect of integrity is seen in an elder's Propriety. We see that in verse 6 at the beginning. Paul says, if anyone is above reproach. Now, I've not said that the elders need to exhibit perfection, but propriety. All believers uh, will eventually be perfected in glory at the return of Christ and, and the resurrection of our bodies. But prior to this, uh, we are, as Martin Luther declared, both just and at the same time Sinners. It is Christ's imputed righteousness that gives a believer their just standing before God and this solely by his grace. In this present life, we are then called to work in partnership with the the indwelling Holy Spirit to grow more like Christ into what we will eventually be made fully at the end. Now, is this not exactly what Paul stated in his opening greeting where he said that the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness when paul states that anyone may be considered for eldership who is above reproach he's looking for men whose lives are characterized by this pursuit of holiness as a result there will not be anything in these men's lives that will leave them open to the charge of impropriety And the Greek word translated as above reproach is a a synonym of the word that Paul used in his letter to Timothy, uh, where he declared in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Remember that Titus and Timothy, or 1 Timothy, Paul gives a clear annunciation of what eldership is to be. Now, both Greek words uh, under the uh, above reproach essentially mean that an elder conducts himself in a way that nothing he does or says, whether it's in public or in private, uh, will give even the chance of him being open to attack or criticism. Uh, One person translates it as unimpeachable. Now, we hear uh, this term used in the context of the United States presidency. Uh, If the president does something wrong, seriously wrong, uh, they may be impeached and removed from office. Elders are then to be considered unimpeachable. But again, this doesn't mean perfection. Elders will still be sinners. And so part of being above reproach is to recognise that if they have sinned, to act with humility and promptly seek forgiveness and restitution and reconciliation. They are to exemplify the teaching of Jesus, uh, who said in Matthew chapter 5 from verse 23, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison." Now, there may be, of course, uh, sins that are grievous and will require the removing of an elder, uh, which Paul outlines in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It is a terrible thing to sin while bearing the name of Christ, especially from a leadership position. Uh, and some things may disqualify a man from returning to that office ever again, uh, even if repentance has occurred. On the other hand, a person who has committed grievous sin before becoming a Christian should not be automatically disqualified from seeking a position within the eldership. Just think of how the Apostle Paul describes himself in his letters as to what his life was like before he was touched by grace. To be above reproach is the aim of all Christians. The Apostle Peter makes this clear when he says in 1 Peter 3 from verse 15, In your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. Now while all Christians are to act in propriety only those men who are diligent in this respect are to be considered for eldership and to be above reproach is really the the overarching aspect of eldership in Paul's letters to Titus and to Timothy everything he lists as important qualities for eldership stem from this characteristic so perhaps overarching you think of undergirding if it's going to stem from it If any elder is above reproach, then he will be so in every sphere of his life and ministry. So the second aspect of integrity is seeing an elder's purity. This is an example of what it means to be above reproach, what it means to act with propriety. So... uh, As we continue in verse 6, we see that an elder is to be the husband of one wife. Now there have been four suggestions of understanding this requirement and it's important that we we look through these to understand what Paul's really on about here. So the first suggestion is simply that elders must be married. And while this would be the normal situation, uh, to rule out unmarried men would establish a contradiction uh, with Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where he states that believers can be more effective in ministry if they remain single. Uh, They have less of the, uh, the ties to family, that they can have freedom to serve Christ. But it would also be hypocritical as Paul himself was currently single at that point and we also recognize the other notable Christian leader who was single, and that is Jesus himself. The second suggestion is that elders must not be polygamists. To be a husband of one wife means that Paul's excluding uh, men from eldership candidacy who have multiple wives. But is this the case? Well, while the scriptures affirm that polygamy is sinful, uh, Paul could have used more specific language to get that point across if he so desired. Also, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9, Paul addresses the issue of assisting widows in the church. And he says this, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. So here is the reverse. Now, a woman with more than one husband was considered wrong by the Jews and also the Romans So it's highly unlikely that the similar phrase concerning elders has to do with preventing polygamy. The third suggestion is that elders may marry only once. Now this suggestion also has some issues with it. Firstly, Paul does not preclude people from remarrying after the death of a spouse. He makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39. And also, given the temptation to sexual immorality, at times counselled for widows to to remarry. Secondly, in the case of divorce and remarriage, there are two only two narrow biblical exceptions where God grants his grace to the innocent party. The innocent one is not commanded, but may divorce. uh, In the case of their spouse having committed adultery, which Jesus makes clear in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, or in the case of their unbelieving spouse wanting to leave in reaction to the gospel. And Paul lays this out in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15. These are the only two parameters in which divorce may legitimately happen without incurring sin uh, and for remarriage of the innocent party without also being considered sinful and adulterous. Now, There may be further considerations to how a divorce reflects on a man's ability to lead his household and hence his ability to lead in the church. However, to immediately disqualify a divorced man from the possibility of eldership does not fit with the wider biblical teaching. Moreover, to propose that Paul is making a statement about marital status uh, does not fit naturally into the context of a discussion on what it means to be above reproach. And so it seems that Paul is not primarily pointing to a marital status but to moral character and conduct. And that leads us to the fourth suggestion, that elders must be sexually pure. The phrase in the original language says this, a one-woman man. A one-woman man. It describes a man who has faithfully pure attitudes and actions. Alexander Strauss in his book, uh, Biblical Eldership, he says this, negatively, the phrase prohibits an elder from polygamy, concubinage, homosexuality and or any other questionable sexual relationship. Positively, Scripture says the candidate for eldership should be a one-woman man, meaning he has an exclusive relationship with one woman. Such a man is above reproach in his sexual and marital life. So, if a man is married, he is to be faithful to his wife. And this removes any notion that a man can be married to one woman all his life and yet allow his eyes to kind of wander off in lust. Uh, or actually, then go on to participate in physical adultery. It also allows for single men to be considered uh, for eldership. For while an elder who is who is single, or, or an elder, uh, yeah, an elder who is single cannot obviously demonstrate faithfulness to his wife because he doesn't have one. Um, he can, by his commitment to sexual purity, demonstrate an attitude of being a one-woman man in preserving himself for his future wife, uh, with avoidance of such things as unwholesome talk, pornography or fornication. Now, of course, this should be the attitude of all believers, shouldn't it? Paul makes that very clear in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says this, for this is the will of God. But just, just pause there for a moment. We're always wondering, what is the will of God for my life? Well, here is one of those moments where Paul says exactly what the will of God is for your life. This is the will of God, your sanctification. There's nothing ambiguous about that. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And as we've talked about in previous weeks, sexual immorality is anything, anything whatsoever outside the covenant of marriage. Or think of what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honour among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So sexual purity is the will of God for all his people. But only those men exemplifying that pursuit are to be considered for eldership. Now, while it's not mentioned here, it would be also helpful for us to specify from Paul's other writings that it would be assumed that if an elder is married, his wife is to be a believer. In 2 Corinthians 6 verses 14 and 15, Paul warns the church members declaring, "...do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers." For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, that is Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now while this serves as a a general principle regarding relationships between believers and unbelievers, it has specific relevance in the context of marriage. A Christian should never marry a non-Christian. If... Two unbelievers get married and and one person becomes a Christian at a later stage. Then Paul encourages the believer in 1 Corinthians 7 to do everything they can to stay with their unbelieving spouse. Unless that unbelieving spouse leaves in reaction to the gospel. Now this would also be the case for a Christian who has married an unbeliever. They too should stay married as far as it depends on them. Paul, again, draws the importance of believers marrying believers when he says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39 that a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And what does only in the Lord mean? It means only a fellow believer. Now, if this is the case for believers in general... Uh, then how much more so for those tasked with the leadership of the church? Later in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 9, Paul defends his right to be supported for his gospel ministry. Although to prevent any stumbling blocks, he he chooses not to insist upon those rights. But he says this in chapter 9, verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas. Now, Paul wasn't married at that point. Uh, It's probable that he was a widower. But his point was that he had just as much a right to be married as the other leaders had. Now, for our purposes, just note the kind of wife that he was claiming he could bring along with him. It is a believing wife. Now, this is not to say that a Christian man who is married to a non-Christian wife is not suitable for, for ministry. Far from that, of course not. In fact, The first and most important ministry he has is to his family, to do everything he can, to lead in a godly way, to teach the gospel with a great desire and earnest prayer that his wife and family may receive Christ in faith. Outside the home, he may have a truly effective ministry in other areas through which the Holy Spirit has gifted him, which may include leadership and it may include teaching. But until such point as his wife demonstrates the fruit of faith, (coughs) it would seem out of step uh, with the biblical witness. Could someone just grab a glass of water for us? (coughs) It would seem out of step with the biblical witness that he has been given, that he be given the high responsibility (coughs) of eldership. It matters. It matters very much because the church needs leaders focused on on a task and who are above reproach remember the example of the excellent wife in Proverbs 31 and how her faithful fulfilling of her godly service at home enabled her husband the freedom to serve well in the tasks that God had assigned for him thank you So an elder whose wife is is not with him spiritually will have great difficulty shepherding the church. But let's not forget about the wife of an elder too. It is a difficult task having one's husband dealing with the intricacies of church life. It is difficult enough for a Christian wife who can support her husband and family in prayer and godly example. It's another thing altogether for a non-Christian wife, a woman without the Spirit of God dwelling within her, without any understanding of of ministry, without concern for the exaltation of God or or the edification of believers or the evangelising of the lost, the, the purposes of the church. That is a burden that she should not bear, nor would she wish to bear. And while the wife is not an elder she nevertheless feels the responsibility that her husband undertakes. She sees the highs and the lows. And her life too is under scrutiny. So pray for the wives of your elders. Encourage them, thank them, support them. While an elder is to be a one-woman kind of man, the one woman to whom he is faithful is incredibly important in his ministry. So we've seen that the integrity of an elder is is to be seen in his propriety, in his purity, and now thirdly, in his paternity. (coughs) Continuing in verse 6. And his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Well, let's deal with the easy matter of this requirement first. This statement does not preclude men from eldership who do not have children. If that were the case, it would mean that men who only had one child uh, could also not be considered suitable for eldership. Now, just note that Paul speaks of the elders' children. That's plural. Just like a man is, is called to be faithful to his wife if he is married, so here a man is to lead his children well if he has them. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul says of the elder that he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So family life is then one of the major proving grounds for how a man will lead the congregation. So in considering uh, candidates for eldership who are not currently married or who do not currently have children, other facets of that person's life will have to be reflected upon uh, to gauge their capacity for spiritual leadership. And if the man proves worthy, then whether he's single or whether he's married but without children, then he may certainly still be considered for eldership. Well, that was the easy bit. Now comes the harder bit. There is significant debate about how this passage is to be translated and the issue revolves around the word believers. The underlying Greek word can be translated in English as either believing or faithful. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 2 the word is believing. Paul says those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Then 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, the word we see there is faithful. Paul says, And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So as a result, some English Bibles, like the, the ESV, take the word here in Titus 1, verse 6 to be believing, while others take it to mean faithful. For example, the New King James Version, which says an elder is to be a man who is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So the difference then is is whether an elder is to have children who believe in the sense of possessing saving faith in Jesus Christ or have children who are faithful in the sense that his children respect his leadership and are obedient to him. Now obviously there are great implications for the way this passage is interpreted and it's taken me several years of wrestling with this text and wrestling with the arguments for both aspects before I felt comfortable to land on any conclusions or of the willingness to preach it. Because of the importance of this verse we need to take some time to work through it carefully. In the original language, the phrase is three words, which are translated in English as having, believing or faithful and children. And so let's look at the first and the last before circling back to the middle. And you might be thinking, well, why do I need to know any of this? Well, I think it's important uh, for the fact that Paul is uh, teaching about the foundation of the church here. And so it's important for the church to be glorifying God in the way he wants it to be and that the leadership uh, is glorifying God and set apart in the way that he wants. And so it's important for us to think very clearly about these qualifications, that we don't just gloss over them. So, the word having does not refer to the children's possession of belief or faithfulness but to the father's possession of the children. Paul was talking about the elder's children. The word is in the present tense and it signifies possession of someone in a close relationship. As one commentator explains, the implication is that Paul was talking about children who are still rightly under the father's authority in his home. Now, it's certainly true that a, a child's upbringing has a major effect on the way they behave when they grow up And leave the home. However, once that child steps out from the authority of the father's household, that the child becomes responsible for his or her actions. Now the word children is a general term, and it's not necessarily limited to young children. Indeed, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 4, Paul writes. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Well, in that context, the children are certainly old enough to assist their widowed mother, and so they, they may have even left the home by that stage. Whereas if we look in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 4, we read that the elder must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. In this instance, uh, the children are still young enough to be living at home, but there's no further designation on exactly how old or how young these children are. So the question then is how old are the children referred to in Titus chapter 1? Well, it's been suggested that when Paul wrote to Timothy, he was referring to younger children. And then when he wrote to Titus, he was speaking of older children that may have left the home. But the language in Titus does not seem clear enough to make uh, that distinction fully. The preceding phrase that the children must not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination would certainly refer to older children, but this still doesn't specify whether the children are at home or not. Now, could just as well be referring to older children living at home. And in that respect, it could certainly encompass the children referred to in 1 Timothy 3. Paul's also uh, already made clear in the opening words to Titus that faith leads to godliness. And it would certainly be true that believing children would not be acting in debauched or insubordinate ways. However, These negative terms fit more naturally as a direct opposite of obedient nature. In fact, some scholars have noted that there is a pattern in Titus where Paul lists one positive attribute followed by two negative attributes that help flesh out what is meant by the positive. So in Titus chapter 1, verse 13, Paul speaks of rebuking false teachers that they may be sound in faith. And the soundness of faith is then contrasted by two negative statements in verse 14, where he says, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. A similar thing is found in Titus uh, chapter 2 verse 3, where older women are to be reverent in behaviour, which is directly contrasted by two negative statements, where they are not to be slanderers or slaves to too much wine. It seems more natural then to contrast the positive statement of faithfulness being required for elders' children with the two negative statements of debauchery and insubordination as things to be avoided. The two negatives explaining the meaning of the positive. And as one uh, New Testament professor states, what is in view is not occasional disobedience, but deep-seated rebellion against parental authority we of course know there are stages in children's life where they will be more open to the father and the mother's leading and there will be more other times when they will be challenging that authority. Now, one other consideration needs to be addressed and that is, were there no candidates for eldership in Ephesus whose children were old enough to make a profession of faith? Did Paul not mention the requirement of belief to Timothy because there were only younger men in Ephesus, but older men in Crete. But what happened 10, 15, 20 years later when the children of the Ephesian elders grew up? Now something only needs to be written once in the Bible for it to be true, but if Paul really did expect young, uh, children of eldership candidates to be submissive when they were younger, and then make a profession of faith when they were older, then would he not have made that clear in both his letters which laid out the qualifications for eldership, which were sent to two different apostolic delegates who were in two different locations. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, Paul's overarching requirement of elders is that they may be above reproach. And so it would seem to have been unhelpful if Paul had set certain level for eldership in Ephesus that their children were to be submissive, but then an even higher level for eldership in Crete. That their children were to be believers. Now, this leads us to the conclusion that the word faithful is a better translation than believing. In fact, the same Greek word appears two other places in Titus, and they are both translated with the sense of faithfulness. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says of the elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word. And then in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says of the gospel message that the saying is trustworthy. The idea of having children who are faithful to their father also fits uh, much more in line with the focus of the passage itself for it speaks of the character and conduct of the man that he can keep a well-maintained household and as such is a good candidate for the eldership where he would be looking after God's household. Now it can be argued that the expectation of having believing children also speaks to the ability of uh, the man in teaching his children about the gospel but as we know salvation is solely by the grace and sovereignty of god and as such while men are responsible for teaching the gospel uh, to their children the result is not in their hands as a godly father but in the hands of the heavenly father and the same is true in the church. Elders are to preach the gospel and to lead well, but salvation is by God's grace. And elders are not asked to step down if it's found that there is one unbeliever in the congregation, in God's household. What is required of an elder is nothing other than what is expected of all Christian fathers. Paul lays out this expectation in Ephesians 6 verse 4, where he says, "'Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger.' but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, does that mean when considering a man for eldership that we should not reflect upon the way uh, his grown children live? Well, I don't think Paul would want us to be so undiscerning. If there is a discernible pattern of depravity throughout most of his children, then wisdom would suggest asking a few questions. Overall, however, in his excellent commentary on Titus Uh, George Knight summarises Paul's requirement this way. He says this, What must not characterise the children of an elder is immorality and undisciplined rebelliousness if the children are still at home and under his authority. Paul is not asking any more of the elder and his children than is expected for every Christian father and his children. However, only if a man exercises such proper control over his children may he be an elder. So, An elder's integrity is seen in his propriety, in his purity, and also in his paternity. Now, if that's glossed over a few people, i just encourage you to to zone back in for a moment as we look at the final aspect here that Paul emphasises, and that is the elder's personality. Uh, Paul begins in verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Now, as we saw last week, an elder is an overseer. Paul explicitly declares here that the elder does not have ownership of the church that he oversees, for the church he oversees belongs exclusively to God. The elder looks after God's household as a faithful steward. And since the church is God's household, the overseer must be above reproach nothing less would be considered acceptable. Now, this is reiterated from verse 5, which served as the underlying qualification of eldership. Elders must be above reproach. In verses 7 to 8, then, Paul fleshes out what that looks like in more general terms related to a man's character. And if we understand reproach in its negative form, that is, that an elder is not to be considered reproachable, then Paul lists six negative traits that an elder must not be, followed by six positive traits that an elder must be. So in verse 7, we see a list of traits to abstain from. And we'll go through these quickly now. First, as we've already addressed, the elder must not do anything that brings about reproach. He must be above reproach. Second, he must not be arrogant An elder must not be a man who demands that he gets his own way and is inconsiderate of the opinions of others. Now, while there will most certainly be issues in the life of the church that must be stood firmly for, whether they be theological, practical, ethical, there is a way to work through matters in grace and care. Third, he must not be quick-tempered. He must not be prone to anger or or one who harbors long-standing anger in the form of resentment and bitterness. Fourth, he must not be a drunkard. This is not a blanket command to avoid alcohol entirely, but an imperative to avoid drunkenness and more of a becoming addicted to alcohol or, or anything else for that matter. Drunkenness is not only sinful, but it inhibits a man's ability to think and act clearly. Fifth, he must not be violent. Now, there is a broader implication here than merely physical violence. It it is describing an attitude of violence. An elder should not be a contentious person who is prone to quarrelling or fighting. And sixth, He must not be greedy for gain. An elder must not be characterized by a love of money. He must never, ever use his privileged position for his own personal profit. Instead, he must exemplify trust in God alone and demonstrate generosity with God's material blessings. Now, these are things that an elder must not be. These are traits to abstain from. But then in verse 8, we have a list of traits to adhere to. First, an elder must be hospitable. Now, the Greek word is xenon. Philo meaning love and xenon meaning strangers. To be hospitable is to love strangers. It's the exact opposite of what we know today as xenophobia, which is the fear or the hatred of strangers. Elders must be hospitable. They must have attitudes that reflect a desire and care to serve all people. A desire that is exhibited particularly in the way they use their material possessions to bless others. Second, he must be a lover of good. Now this is more than just wanting to do good or to see good happen but it is having a personal affection and desire for what God has declared is good. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 3, Paul says that the last days will be characterized by people not loving good. And hence there is tremendous need for elders who yearn and long for what is good. Third, he must be self-controlled. This quality is translated in other Bible translations as sensible or prudent. It means to have a sound mind or a sober mind. After Jesus healed the demon possessed man in Mark 5 15, the man was in his right mind. An elder must be a person who is able to exhibit clear thinking and good judgment. Fourth, he must be upright. This means the elder must be righteous. He must be someone whose life is characterized by seeking to do what is right in the eyes of God. Alexander Strauss comments that an elder who is righteous can be counted on to be a principled man and to make fair, just and righteous decisions for the church. Fifth, he must be holy. All believers have been made holy through faith in Christ and his work on the cross. And all believers are also uh, called to become more of what they have already become. An elder will be someone who works hard in his devotion to God and serves as an example to the congregation in his commitment to godliness. And sixth, he must be disciplined. An elder not only has self-control in all aspects of their life, but they work hard at maintaining it. There is a sense of having mastery uh, that enables them to stand firm in the faith. A man can only undertake the responsibility for shepherding the flock if he's able to look after his own life. So this is Paul's dual list. This is what is to characterize the personality of an elder. And what we notice as well is that by listing these features in a manner of denials and affirmations, Paul is showing that it's not enough that an elder abstain from certain negative traits, but that he also adheres to certain positive traits. For instance, it's not enough that an elder must not be a drunkard. No, he must also be hospitable. So an elder's integrity is seen in his propriety in His purity, in His paternity, and in His personality. As I explained at the start, these are, are nothing different to what is commanded of all Christians. Every believer is called to obey the Word and be conformed to the image of Christ. But in this, we also recognize the necessity of the indwelling Spirit. We're not only saved by the Holy Spirit's work, we are also sustained and sanctified and we serve by the Holy Spirit's work. The elders are to be men who cooperate with the indwelling spirit of Christ in order that they may be qualified to lead Christ's church. It's not a greatness of self they rely on, but the tremendous mercy and grace of God. And so may God ensure that the integrity of his leaders here at MAFRA remains strong. And we ask this for his glory and for the benefit of his household. Let's pray. Lord we thank you that uh, you have called us by your grace into the body of Christ we recognise that Christ is the only mediator but we also recognise the importance that you've set up of gifts uh, in the church that each one of us who possesses the spirit uh, has been gifted in different ways all for the service of the body but Father, we also recognise the importance that you've placed in, in setting apart leaders, setting apart elders to, to lead and to teach uh, the congregation. We recognise the importance of this, this office. And it's with humility that we look through these uh, qualifications today. We pray for the elders who currently serve at the Mafra Community Church that you would help us to continually be exhibiting these characteristics uh, through the strength of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would continue to uh, be working in the hearts of each person here, that um, that you would be uh, stirring among uh, men uh, that, uh, that others may be seeking to, to serve in this role as well. But Father, as a church as a whole, we pray that you would help us to understand that, that there is order, that you are not a God of disorder but of order. And uh, as we seek to um, continue to serve uh, in the way that you have set up for your church, we pray that you would bring glory to yourself through us and the proclamation of the gospel would spread beyond in wondrous ways. In your son's name we pray. Amen.